Where I Sit, hosted by me, Jamina R. States. This episode is an audio recording of a column by the same name. If you want to read the print edition, please visit www.kianispeaks.com and click on From Where I Sit. That's www.kion, as in Nancy, I, speaks.com. I hope you enjoy this first episode. It's dedicated to my mother, Natalie States, who told me to tell you that you need to vote in the 2020 election. And that's the title of this essay. Enjoy. Endings and beginnings are a part of the natural cycle of everything in the universe. Transformation, the process of changing from one state to another, is joined at the middle or at the ends by destruction and creation, with perhaps a rest in between. Following the rules of the universe in which it exists, America's democracy will follow that same trajectory. Many have predicted its untimely end since its inception, while others rallied to ensure that it would thrive and survive for generations. Perhaps this moment we are in is a bit of both. America is not alone in this moment. It seems the entire planet is crumbling at the seams. Destruction is happening and will not be stopped. Some things just have to end so that new things can have room to live. Some are catastrophically calling the 2020 election a test of democracy, as if democracy is an independent entity with a mind of its own. They forget that this particular democracy is supposed to be run by people for people. Therefore, this election, like every other challenge we face on this planet, is a test of people. What are people capable of? What do they believe about their personal limits and their capacity to create change? What no one has predicted, and what a spate of articles about non-voters only seems to hint at, is that this democratic experiment could fall to pieces because its people gave up on hope, empathy, and compassion for themselves, one another, and ultimately failed to understand the human capacity to guide transformation. Instead, many seem more inclined to be driven over by its destructive aspects and by those who would wield destruction against them while clinging to the hope that the events unfolding are not as bad as they actually are. Because endings and beginnings are a natural order, it makes sense to sit idly by and let nature, and human nature, run its course for better or for worse. However, some can't help but to believe in the human capacity for collective change, and they are the ones urging non-voters to vote. To them, casting a vote in the 2020 election is an act of hope for a dying democracy, not necessarily in favor of its ending or its resurrection, but in hopes that collectively we can guide its transformation. I am guilty of hope, and thanks to my mother, I am guilty of urging non-voters to vote instead of remaining silent. I don't believe in America. Her idealistic promises, her wayward institutions, her exclusive contracts, her broken treaties, her failed systems. But I am guilty of believing in the people who call this land home, or the only home they've ever known, no matter how they got here or why they came. Maybe I'm too optimistic. But I believe, if in nothing else, in the intention of the experiment to have a government for the people, by the people. We all know that the catch was, well, how do you define people? And that the people had to fight to be recognized as such, which gave the predators a head start in this experiment. We see that generations of them have successfully run this experiment into the ground and continue to do so, 
now more openly than ever. Over the course of this flailing empire's history, we've witnessed the very worst of what damage people can do when their worst traits are allowed to lead and make decisions that only serve themselves, single-minded greed, rampant unchecked capitalism, myopic visions of reality, progress at the rate of light speed and at the expense of every living thing on the planet, win-lose compromises, broad-stroke solutions with more holes than Swiss cheese that leave the most vulnerable still unprotected and disempowered. This indictment is not limited to government institutions. It includes industries that employ the same mindsets and practices, which is likely to some degree to include all of them. And now we, the people who allowed this to go unchecked, must hold ourselves accountable. Now more than ever, we must review our values, our commitments to our present and our future, and negotiate the ways they might be at odds with one another. This is where my optimism asserts itself. I believe in a government for the people, by the people, but a government for the people, by the people doesn't work if the people are disillusioned and misinformed. It doesn't work when the people aren't holding themselves accountable for participating in the creation of their society. Say what you want about systems and institutions. They work and are allowed to work because the majority of people don't believe they have the power to change them. If they believed, they would act like it. If they believed, they would have more creative ways of holding the government accountable, and they would do it. People either aren't paying attention to how the government impacts their daily lives, and by not paying attention, I really mean they have no fucking idea, or they don't actually care to use their power to change the injustice in those institutions and systems. They happily ignore it, at least until that injustice comes blowing down their front doors. Then suddenly it's, this shouldn't happen in America. We don't treat people like this. Our president can't act this way. The Senate shouldn't allow this to happen. They do it every day. They've done it every day since 1776. American people ignore the egregious acts of this government against people at home and abroad every day. This country's actions don't line up with its supposed values. And the same is true for its people. So much so that people don't vote or they waste their vote on single selfish issues that are none of their business and none of their governments either. But now we live in times fraught with injustice and strife. Daily news from the executive branch shatters all illusion that the willfully ignorant might cling to. And most front doors are or will be shortly knocked in by some form of betrayal. The powers that be are depending on the uneducated to continue to disinform and disengage. It feels absurd, yet the truth rises up into all of our faces. We either care about people or we don't. We either want all of us to have a fighting chance to live and to create a new world, or we are okay with many lives lost in the inevitable fires this nation will become if we continue to allow greed and warmongers to shape our lives. Lives will end anyway. That is the cycle of life, the law of the universe, the central illusion of time. It is okay to resign oneself to ride out the fall of the gasping empire and to take one's chances at survival. That decision, though, should be an informed one. The government as it stands won't save us either way. It's not the government's job to save us. If we want to see changes, we must be the change agents. We have to take responsibility for the direction 
and quality of our lives individually and collectively. At the very least, we can cast a vote. The reasons for not voting are myriad, valid, and therefore tempting. Many non-voters are people who are convinced that the system is against them anyway, that elections are rigged regardless, and they won't be found dead or alive approving the people in the systems that lie to their faces while keeping them disempowered. These same people believe that the system needs to change or be dismantled. They are well-versed in the failing of this democracy, and they complain about the system and its ways all the time. By complain here, I do mean write, tweet, protest, meet in small groups to study the problem, float ideas that might replace the status quo, dream about how to create health and peace for all people. But those meetings rarely end with action steps in the direction of solutions. Those dreams stay written down in notebooks unseen. I met someone once who said their family didn't fight for the right to vote during the civil rights era because they believed God was in charge and therefore didn't participate in any process that put man's power to determine their lives above God's. This person was formerly an activist and still considered themselves to be working toward the liberation of black people. They were not inclined to vote. The New York Times ran an article just this week about people who don't vote in America. One of the two camps were people who think politics is too messy and too argumentative, so they stayed out of it. Essentially, the people interviewed claimed that the people in their lives were so argumentative and disagreeable that they'd rather lie about having voted or not vote at all to avoid being in an uncomfortable conversation about politics. My suspicion is that they really don't know what to think or how to think, which is fair in this era of information overload and lies. They may even feel like they don't have time to think critically about the political landscape. It takes work to be a properly informed citizen, which is why we appreciate people who research and make the information available to us. Shout out to Patriot Act on Netflix and sites like VoteSmart, Open Secrets, and Ballotpedia, who track and dig into data. But even the act of keeping up with the information requires vetting sources, making sure they are accurate, and critically thinking about how information is presented filtered through a perspective versus what is being left out by that same perspective. Many people choose not to engage. They don't value being informed enough to actually work at being informed. The other camp was much like the people in my world. They believe nothing will change if they do vote. Life is too hard, they are too poor, and politicians have made promises of improvement that they didn't keep. They feel like pawns in the game in the context of this political system. For that, they refuse to play. Some of these people are in survival mode. Because the system doesn't help them, they don't participate in it. In both camps, the people in the article seemed explicitly or implicitly to say, it'll sort itself out, or someone else will have to fix it because it won't be me. There are several shades of difference between wanting things to change and not being willing to change them that the Times article, its subjects, and many non-voters ignore in their explanations for why they don't vote. Voting or not voting is a reflection of our values and what we believe about our power to create our worlds, individually and collectively. Many who consider themselves activists speak disparagingly about the act of voting in this American democracy. Some of them vote, some of them don't. The arguments against voting as a means to liberation are immature, short-sighted, and hypocritical. They speak as if there is only one way to change the world, and because voting is deemed ineffectual, it is therefore useless. Yet grassroots campaign depend on money pools, which are impacted by wages and taxes, and whether communities have discretionary income, 
public or private space, and resources to contribute. The wages and taxes that make it possible or difficult for a community to provide are influenced, if not determined, by people who sit in, in elected offices. The calls for abolition ask for the police to be defunded, for the money in city and state budgets to go to education, social services, and health care. Who determines city budgets? Elected officials. Who determines the quality of education, social services, and health care? The policies are determined by elected officials. If activists want local funds to shift away from the police into social support, education, and health, then casting a vote for people who support those causes is one essential action among the, in, the many others that can be employed. So what do we say we value? And what do our actions reveal to be our real values? Both the religious moral objectors and the socio-political objectors tend to believe in solidarity, that we aren't free until we're all free. They form social networks and provide local supports in their communities. They advocate for change, protest acts of injustice, and shame the perpetrators. But some of them won't vote, even when lives that aren't their own, the lives of the maligned people they claim to care about, might be somewhat improved by a simple ballot cast every two to four years. The question is, does your moral objection outweigh the frailty of the millions of lives that are on the line? The refugee children being held in detention centers for trying to leave behind lives of violence are now separated from their parents. The recently erased environmental protections that are meant to help preserve us all now eliminated and speeding us to unrelenting climate disasters. Supreme Court appointments that will shape our laws for generations, thus impacting children who aren't even born yet. These are the lives at stake. These are the lives whose justice some objectors claim to be preserving by not voting for their immediate relief from the increased weight of these oppressive forces. If your vote could create more ease for others, even if you don't think the benefits would extend to you and your community, wouldn't the justice for all oppressed people mentality propel one to vote anyway? Suddenly, at the voting booth, the freedom of others gets trumped by conscientious objection? This all-or-nothing mentality is immature. What do you really value? Your own sense of righteousness? Or the lives of people who don't get to be so cavalier with their votes? Or who don't get to vote at all, but their very futures depend on the choices we make now? To not vote is to say your individual morality, logic, right to refuse is more important than the collective's opportunity to have more freedom, more breathing room, more rights, cleaner air, or at the very least to be treated with dignity in their most intimate and basic of human efforts. Survival. Where else have we seen personal moral righteousness outweighing the chance at more freedom for all? Hint. Anti-choice arguments sing in this same register, as do anti-gay marriage ones. Lately, the chant is that we can't vote the oppressive systems out because voting doesn't change the minds of the people who would oppress us. And it's true. Voting doesn't change the mindsets of oppressors. But not voting against injustice lets the voices of the unjust count more. Non-action is a powerful form of action. If you are being asked to choose between life and death, and you say, I'd rather not say, and the majority of voices say, let's all die today. Your silence allowed and supported that majority, whether you wanted to die, whether you were already dead, whether you were going to die anyway, 
or not. Your silence was permission. This is the beauty and the challenge of democracy, the strength in numbers, the ability to opt out, and the power and responsibility of collectively opting in. The end of all oppression and hatred is an ideal to strive for in the nation and around the world. Ideals are what we set goals by. We do not let less than ideal conditions stall our progress. It is immature to call for an end to all hatred and oppression and to also reject any progress that isn't 100% and immediate. Progress is not absolute. If someone expected you to become a master chef tomorrow and tomorrow you failed, You'd cry about the injustice of being graded on that scale. You'd ask for more time, more practice, more study, more training. Building a society that works for everybody is the same, especially when we're starting from behind as everybody who isn't a white man in America or protected by the interests of a white man in America is. I believe education is the solution to every problem. Via Kiani Speaks, I offer classes and workshops for families and educators that support them to break learners' education out of the box. If you want to connect over my services, please visit www.kianispeaks.com for more information. It's K-I-O-N as in Nancy, I-Speaks, S-P-E-A-K-S dot com. I look forward to meeting you there. The sentiment that voting can't change people's minds is correct but it can begin to change the systems that allow oppressive behaviors and biases to flourish. Universal law suggests that evil and people who choose evil will always exist. The best we can do is hold the line for collective safety and comfort as best we know how, using all the tools that are available to us. We aren't to strive for perfection. We are to strive for progress toward perfection. And we can make greater progress if we center ourselves in our locus of control and let go of the idea of a perfect society. Some of our most imaginative souls have discovered that utopias are rife with oppression anyway. See any dystopic science fiction story available at your local library. And there are those who don't vote because they feel ignored. They feel pain of oppression and poverty and they either don't have any more hope or if they do hope, the hope is that someone else will come in and save them. In the meantime, they live frustrated that no one cares and no one is coming. The changes they want to see are built upon systems that are run by elected officials. If wage workers, for example, want higher wages, affordable housing, reliable transportation, health care, and high quality of life, the least that they and those who do care about them can do is to rally around and vote in support of candidates who support those same ideas. There is validity and wisdom in most perspectives on non-voting. But just because disillusionment exists doesn't mean that it's okay. It doesn't mean that it's right. Disillusionment ignores the fact that the democratic experiment requires participation, action, and multiple courses of action running at the same time to enact change. The disillusionment that leads to non-action is for people who have given up hope. And yet these people hope, wish, and dream that it could all be different despite not being moved to action. So what do you hope for? What do you really hope for? And what do your actions say you hope for? The hopeless are pretending to be hopeful and hiding behind nobility, pure thinking, disenchantment, reactionary ideas, and depression. 
Perhaps this is the unpredicted end of a civilization. The people see the power-hungry running rampant and unchecked, and instead of standing up, they complain and sit around waiting for somebody else to save them. Newsflash. The someone else is you. If you don't like the candidates, why don't you and all your friends who live on different sides of town run for office? Many non-voters and non-participants make the excuse that politics is messy, that politicians are dishonest and the system is screwy and arguments are uncomfortable. Politics is reflective of the people who participate in it. It can be messy. It can be nasty. It can demand some mental jujitsu. Politicians fight for what they believe in in spite of all of that. Some of them lie and take money from the highest bidder. But those politicians make a choice. If and when you enter the ring, you have an opportunity to garner support by doing something different. The truth resonates. People know clean water from dirty water. But Americans have a values problem, so right hasn't always won. This can be discouraging, but I've written before about how many of us wouldn't be here if an ancestor let discouragement sap their life force, their hope, and their will to survive. Maybe we fear the system will chew us up and spit us out if we enter that ring. That begs the question, from where do I draw my strength, my support, and my good character? Because if you can be easily moved, maybe the political machine will make mincemeat of you. But there are examples of people who are not allowing that. They come from communities and families that support them. They do what they have to do to stay grounded. They fight. They participate. And they probably need some more like-minded people to stand up and join them. Speaking of waiting for someone else to do the job or for the government to do right by the people, we need to reclaim the authority we have to govern our own lives, our communities, and our businesses. We need to stop waiting for the government to do for us what we can and have always done for ourselves. For example, some idealists are saying that Election Day should be a federal holiday. If you think so, why wait for a broken government to fix it? If you supervise people, if you run a business of any size, if you have the power to shutter your doors, to close and give every employee paid time off to vote right now, then why not just do so? The government doesn't give us our rights. We assert them and someone gets hip to the idea and institutionalizes it. Remember Martin Luther King Jr., FBI's Most Wanted? Loved by the people so much he now has a national holiday and statue? Get real. Because what the people want is acceptable when the government needs to keep them pacified, or win them over. Wherever we are, whatever we can do is what we must do. This is one way we can be accountable for what happens in this country. If people were accountable for holding their government accountable, what kind of country would we be? We can't ask the American political machine to change politely. We need to be the ones willing to change it. It doesn't respond well to pressure from the outside, especially if that pressure has no financial backing. It doesn't respond well to one insider trying to forge ahead. It responds to people doing what is right anyway, in great number and without fear. The beauty of an ideal formulation of democracy is strength in numbers. The opportunity in America's system of local laws superseding federal ones is an important one to grasp. That we can start small and start in our community should be invigorating. The federal election is coming. You should vote. And then you should start to talk to your neighbors about how your corner of the world can be safer, cleaner, and more equitable. Watershed moments happen because small swells turn into large waves. Go to the voting booth and then go back to the drawing board. Study your values. Do a self-inventory on how your actions either support or undermine those values. Maybe your values will change, and that's okay. Study democracy's opportunities, not just its shortcomings. 
What can we keep in this country? What do we need to throw away? What can be approved or overhauled? Get to know your town, your county, your state. Where can you make a difference? And what are you willing to do to enact change inside or outside of the system? Vote and then get busy. Change is always on the way. Postscript. I read the 538 article, which was more comprehensive than the Times article. It focused a lot on non-voters who experienced barriers to voting. Address is not recorded. Provisional ballots possibly not counted. The mail might not work. The line is too long. All these things they'd characterize as discouraging. I don't know how to politely say, you're an adult. Figure that shit out and vote anyway. Local elections determine that process. So it's even more important that you pay attention to who is in the office at the local level of government and use your ballot and your voice to hold them accountable for making voting easier. You've been listening to From Where I Sit, the audio accompaniment to the column of the same name, written and recorded by me, Jamina R. States. If you like this episode, please subscribe to hear more like this and feel free to share it with a friend. From Where I Sit is an audio production of Kiani Speaks, and this episode is copyrighted under Kiani Speaks in the year 2020, arguably the beginning of the end of the world. All rights reserved.